Hello and welcome to episode 1290 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs presented by our Patreon supporters. I'm Ben Lindbergh of The Bringer, joined by Jeff Sullivan of Fangraphs. Hello. Hello. So we're going to do some emails today, I think going to kind of get into off-season mode maybe next time and next week and there's some drafts we have to do and some sort of themed episodes and guests but today I think just some banter and some emails you know I meant to mention one thing that we didn't talk about during the World Series which was Alex Cora's willingness to move outfielders around rotate outfielders in corners We didn't talk about that, but he did that in game three, I guess it was, which was the first game in L.A. and the game where J.D. Martinez maybe was hampered by his ankle injury. And in that game, Mookie Betts went from right field to center field to right field to center field to right field to center field to right field. And Jackie Bradley Jr. obviously was rotating with him and also with J.D. Martinez, who was going from left to right. And Bradley was going from center to left back to center to left. I guess it's not quite what we had talked about in the spring when the Phillies were thinking about doing something similar just on a regular basis because they had some bad outfielders and it seemed like maybe they would just want to do that based on who the hitter was. In this game, I guess it happened just because Martinez was A, Martinez, and B, not 100% of Martinez because it didn't really happen in the other games. I, I think... In game four, Mookie went from center to right once, but that was pretty much the extent of it. But Or game five, I guess that was. But it was it was a one-time thing, but it was weird and sort of notable. Yeah, and uh, when it happened, I'd, maybe it's just because I've curated my feed. I didn't hear anyone really pipe up to say, this is weird and you're over-managing and all that stuff. Because Plus, yeah. you're not going to say that about the Red Sox anyway. But I was just waiting for it, so then I could throw Gabe Kapler in the face, but I didn't get the chance, and also it doesn't really matter. But yeah, it was a neat thing to see them do, and even though it was presumably because J.D. Martinez wasn't 100%, that's still, I mean, J.D. Martinez not at 100% is effectively Reese Hoskins in the outfield, I think. So (laughs) it's kind of the same concept, even if the reason was not just you're bad, but you're bad, plus we have a a less insulting reason than that to to do this. Yeah, right. And there's some precedent for this sort of thing happening in the infield. I know there are examples of old games that I, I remember documenting in an article earlier this year when I was writing about unorthodox defense. There are times when someone was hurt, like a regular infielder, and so you would see the second baseman and the shortstop just rotating or this third baseman or second baseman, whatever, just going back and forth many times in a game. I think there was a recent instance of that where the Mets did it with, uh, what, Mastrubal Cabrera maybe. Mm -hmm. But so that happened. So it's not quite the same, but maybe someday we will actually see this thing semi-routinely. And Martinez seemed fine. I don't know that his ankle hurt him any in the field unless it caused that one play where he just lost the ball in the sky. (laughs) (laughs) But I don't know what his ankle would have to do with that. And that didn't end up costing the Red Sox anyway. Yeah, right. It was in, in what was it, game one when Martinez rolled over on his ankle and we all saw it. We all saw the replay. We all saw several of the replays because that's how sports are televised these days. And then it didn't seem like there was much made of it. At the time, he he kept playing, and it didn't seem like, oh, this is a fact that could de- decide the rest of the series. And then mm-hmm. I was, it was almost a relief 
to me to hear, oh yeah, he actually is sore because if he weren't sore after that, then I don't, I would have had to change my mental estimation of what JD Martinez is because ankles aren't, your ankle isn't supposed to be where your, I don't know, upper thigh is, but he found a way to do it and then he stayed on the field. Yeah, right. And one other serious thing, we didn't talk so much about the ratings, but that was a, a storyline as it usually is at this time of year. And I thought Craig Edwards wrote a good post for Fangraphs about that, where he looked at the reasons behind the ratings decline. And really what we need, it becomes clear from Craig's piece, is like some kind of era adjusted ratings stat, like ratings plus or whatever, <laughs> because this is silly how we all just wring our hands every single year about, oh, the ratings are down. And that's because the ratings are down for everything, like almost everything. I mean, in football, it was the same thing where everyone was saying, oh, the ratings are down because football players are kneeling or something when it seemed just as likely, if not more likely, that it was just that people were watching less football for other reasons. They're watching less everything. So Craig had a, a good chart of the World Series ratings by year going back to the mid-80s compared to the top TV show ratings going back to the same year. And it really does very closely mirror each other. It's just even the most popular show is no longer nearly as popular as it once was. Like you read about shows that were canceled, you know, 20 years ago and the ratings then today's showrunners would kill for. And, you know, it's just there are so many more channels. There are so many more shows. There are people cord cutting and streaming. And the ratings for this World Series don't, I don't think, take into account streaming ways of watching. They don't take into account alternate language broadcasts, which are maybe becoming more popular. And also just the ratings are kind of what they were exactly before 2016 and 2017, which were just two outlier years in terms of the greatness of the actual series and the matchups and the storylines. And so in that context, it doesn't really seem all that concerning. I mean, maybe it's just concerning that people are watching less TV, but in terms of baseball itself being prone to this sort of decline, it doesn't really seem like that's the case. I think, yeah, I think we knew people are watching less TV, and I don't know, I don't really wring my hands over the ratings. In fact, I don't even, I'm not even aware of what the ratings are until somebody writes about it at Fangraphs. I don't seek them out. Mm -hmm. I don't read other articles about it. I personally don't care about the ratings. It's the World Series. Ratings are going to be there. In the way that, you know, you, you write about the playoffs as being an indicator of where baseball is going. And I think that's useful because we'll we'll talk about that in the stat blast, I guess. But uh, you can see a lot of the future trends in the World Series. But at the same time, the World Series is also going to lag behind. If there's going to be a decline in baseball's popularity, that's going to be quantifiable. I think the World Series is not where we're going to see it because people will generally tune in for the championship of a sport, even if they don't care so much about the sport. So I would think that if baseball were dying and et cetera and all those things, then we would see that during the regular season with attendance plummeting mm -hmm. and ratings plummeting and trying to measure streaming frequency plummeting. I don't know how mm -hmm. you do that. Must be a way. There must be a way to do that, right? If we can track when people are watching ads and how long they listen to ads and when they're listening to mm -hmm. podcasts and how many people download a podcast, you can measure streaming. Maybe you can't measure the illegal streaming. I don't know how popular <laughs> that is, but... I feel like the World Series will be the last thing to die if baseball is dying. But it doesn't really matter because even if baseball's dying, we are all dying faster. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. And the local ratings for baseball are still really strong. And this is a story every single postseason because people don't realize that you can't just compare baseball ratings to football ratings or basketball ratings. It's just not the same because the sport is more regional versus national, which, you know, is not a good thing in every way. But baseball has a lot of fans and Football has so many fewer games every year, and they're all nationally televised, and it's just a, a different situation that you, you can't really compare, but that doesn't stop columns from being written very much comparing them every single year as evidence that baseball is dying. But this is a case where even Rob Manfred was bringing it up and saying, you know, we're looking hard at it, and he seemed to be disappointed by the ratings. and. And coming on the heels of the attendance decline in the regular season, which was not enormous, especially once you factor in the weather and some of the accounting stuff about teams you know, counting attendance differently. There was something to it, I think, and probably some of the teams that weren't really competing. But, you know, it, all of these articles, I think, have blown it a bit out of proportion. So coming on the heels of that, the ratings scare seemed to be a problem, but I, I don't see it as a huge one. It, also, just the World Series, as Craig showed, it only went five games, and generally you get ratings boosts for like a game six and a game seven. So that's part of it. If you just get a seven-game series, it skews the whole thing by making it look like more people were watching all along. And, and maybe this matchup just wasn't all that compelling. Another thing Craig mentioned is that we think of the Red Sox as like a big market team that are going to draw a ton of fans, but that hasn't really been the case in like 2007 or 2013. Those ratings weren't spectacular either. So you kind of need the storylines to bring people in like a long drought or, you know, some kind of historical rivalry or something. And it, it just wasn't there this year. Whenever, when the Red Sox and the Dodgers qualified, it, it, all those sarcastic Twitter comments like, oh, baseball got what it wanted. It got its two right. big markets into the World Series and et cetera. And I, I understand, but yeah, because you can go back and you can look at how the, the ratings for the Giants and the Royals weren't great, but it, like the... The the markets are not that different, and as you can see, if baseball was to, in any way concerned about these ratings, these are like two of the, what, three, four biggest markets in the league, but yeah, you just didn't have the compelling storyline. The Red Sox winning is the opposite of what most of the country wants in a given year, and the Dodgers aren't fresh. There's If you had like some sort of fresh big market, like, I don't know. If the Mets made the World Series, maybe it would draw more than the Yankees. That's a stupid thing to say. Okay. No, it wouldn't draw more than the Yankees would make. But uh, the difference between the ratings for a gigantic World Series like this one and something that, I don't know, take the Astros and the Brewers. If they had made it instead, I don't think the ratings would have been that much worse. I wonder how many people would care about tuning in for a fresh underdog like the Brewers because it would feel like the Royals. And that wasn't enormous. But yeah, the, the idea of the league just conspiring to have the Red Sox and the Dodgers in the World Series. It's just evidently stupid, but also you can see in the evidence that it doesn't make that big of a difference. Yeah. So another thing, you wrote about the Orioles, poor Orioles fans. You made them relive their misery. But I thought it was worth mentioning now because one thing you point out in that piece is that no one expected the Orioles to be one of the worst teams of all time. They underperformed at literally every position by an abnormal (laughs) amount. I mean, we all, I 
think we kind of thought the Orioles would be bad, but no one was saying that they would be that bad. Just everything that possibly could have gone wrong, everyone who could have played worse than expected did. And that's how you ended up with this terrible, terrible team. But I think that's something we should keep in mind as we head into the winter, because I think people probably think of the Orioles as a team that tanked you know, one of the tankers, and that's how they ended up with so few wins. But they weren't. They were a team that thought they were contenders. I mean, maybe they were unrealistic, but they thought they were. They signed Alex Cobb. They were going for it, I guess, going for a wild card or whatever. I mean, the odds weren't great, but they were not a tanking team. And so I think we should try to remember that as we look at what teams do this winter. Now, I guess the Orioles today are a tanking team just because (laughs) (laughs) things went so terribly and they finally acknowledged that they had no hope and and they had to start over belatedly. But I think we have to be careful about how we classify them because I got a message uh, earlier this month from someone in a front office who was pointing out that really the teams that tanked this past winter kind of outperformed the teams that were said not to have tanked and like were in kind of the the no man's land but made an effort to upgrade. So, you know, he sent me to an article that Jeff Passan wrote in January about how baseball's economic system is in trouble. And in that article, Jeff identified, I think, eight teams that were tanking or, or had recently tanked. And so it was the Braves, the White Sox, the Reds, the Tigers, the Marlins, the A's, the Pirates, <laughs> and the Rays. <laughs> and not unfair, I guess, because the Rays, the A's, the Pirates, I, I mean, they didn't spend. They were you know, mentioned by the, the Players Association, like, hey, we're keeping an eye on you guys because you aren't spending any money. So they were looked at, I guess, or Jeff classified them as those teams, and then There were another eight teams that this front office person, in conjunction with other people in his front office, had identified at the time as non-playoff teams that made an effort to upgrade. So that would be the Orioles, the Brewers, the Padres, the Giants, the Phillies, the Cardinals, the Angels, and the Twins. And this person followed up with me recently to say, hey, if you take the teams that Jeff said were tankers, they finished with a 475 regular season winning percentage. If you take the teams that we identified as non-playoff teams that are actually trying and are spending and attempting to upgrade, they finish with a collective 469 winning percentage, which I think highlights the fact that Well, A, baseball is unpredictable, but B, maybe we're a little too quick to apply the tanking label to certain teams. And if you just look at tankers versus non-tankers purportedly from last winter, there's just like no difference between how their seasons actually turned out. Like the Braves were tankers, I guess, and they made the playoffs. And the A's and the Rays, the A's made the playoffs. The Rays were competitive. The Pirates were not terrible. They thought they were good for a while there. And then, you know, on the other side of the equation, yeah, you had the Brewers who made great strides, 
but those other teams, uh, things didn't work out for most of them. What's the, so it's been a while since I uh, had read one of these tanking articles, and so I, it's hard for me to understand how, in retrospect, one could have designated the A's and Braves as tankers as opposed to the, now. I guess there's a difference between tankers and teams who aren't paying to get better. Yeah, I I don't know if I don't know what term Jeff used in that article, but teams that weren't trying at least in yeah, terms okay. of spending yeah teams not exercising their financial might as it were to yes. try to get better okay right. so yeah that makes sense teams who were i think tanking implies a one certain kind of action similar to what let's say the uh the marlins did the marlins were clearly mm-hmm. tanking mm-hmm. and it seemed like the greater conversation was less about tanking and more about yeah teams not actively trying to get good mm-hmm. that seemed to be the bigger concern because you know tanking is just another word for rebuilding we've talked about this a million times but yeah. if a uh, last offseason was seemingly characterized according to the the mainstream media as teams <laughs> just trying not to get good and then yeah okay so that's something we, we've talked about pretty often obviously the a's very successful the braves very successful the brewer successful in a in a different kind of way and yeah this is something that is worth coming back to over and over now if you you look at the teams who who got deep. The Astros tried to get good. The Red Sox tried to get good. The Dodgers tried to get good. The Brewers tried to get good. Like the teams that actually lasted in the playoffs mm-hmm. were teams who made a, a pretty concerted effort. Also, three of them spent a lot of money. The Brewers yeah. don't have a payroll, but the Astros, the Red Sox, and the Dodgers, it's, there's no secret there. So you could say that the really, really good teams are teams that made a concerted effort to get to the World Series. But, I mean, what were the A's going to do to try to become one of the elites of the elite? What were any of those teams going to do to try to match up with the Astros or the Yankees or the, the Dodgers or the Cubs or the Red Sox or et cetera? And there wasn't really anything for them to do, not if we're going to be realistic. And so you have these teams who I keep coming back to the fact that even I know that when you talk to people who work for teams, you are getting a biased perspective people who work for teams are not people who necessarily work for players they're not union representatives and so you're going to get the a certain standpoint but to an individual every single person i've talked to all year long even going back into last offseason is like no of course we're trying to win we want to win more than anything else if we don't win we're going to lose our jobs like every single person who works for a team is trying to make that team as good as possible now that doesn't mean that the ownership is spending to its maximum but just because teams are looking for a different way to get better or to not spend money to not get better, it doesn't mean that the team isn't trying to be as successful as it can be. And now it's it's really easy to point to a team like the A's after the fact or the Rays after the fact, but like pretty obviously these teams were onto something because their seasons were so good. And mm-hmm. that was while having their starting rotations, both of those teams in particular, depleted by Tommy John surgeries or in Andrew Triggs' case, some other kind of, what, thoracic outlet, whatever. Andrew Triggs yeah. isn't the reason that the A's didn't go deeper in the playoffs. But you can, yeah. you, the free agent market is changing. This is something I'm sure we're going to be talking about more and more. Oh, yeah. It is not going to go back. We're going to have a lot of the same articles that we had last winter, except that this year won't come as much as a surprise. But the market is changing. Last year was the greatest potent indicator of that. It's not going to go back. But that doesn't mean the teams are less interested in winning. It just means that 
people need to figure out a way to get money in the hands of players when they're younger because the free agent market is not going to be that salvation. Mm -hmm. And I guess it's too soon to say who would be in which camp this year. We kind of have to see. There's some teams that don't even have GMs yet, so we have to see who spends and who doesn't. But just heading into the winter, I guess you would – which teams would you kind of expect to sit on their hands this winter? I mean, you've got the Orioles, presumably. You've got the Rangers, I guess, maybe would be in that camp. Mm -hmm. You've got the Giants, probably. They don't even have a GM yet, but (laughs) maybe – I mean, I don't know whether they're going to try to make one more run at it or whether they're going to go tear down now. Either is possible. There aren't that many other teams. I mean, I don't know. Probably the the White Sox may not feel like they're quite ready to go all in yet. And and the Royals, I guess, are not going to make any splashes. Although in their case, I, I think they just got bad unintentionally. And I don't know. Is there anyone else? Like even the Marlins, I mean, they signed the Mesas. I don't know how much they'll do at the major league level, but that's something. I think it's this is a little pet theory of mine. I think it's very unlikely, but I have this little theory that maybe the Marlins are going to be like a dark horse candidate to throw money at like a Manny Machado or a Bryce Harper. I think that, mm-hmm. you know, maybe, especially in the case of Machado, where maybe the Marlins are like, oh, we don't really care that you're kind of a prick. We just want to give you all of our money and then you can be the, be the superstar. Build around, you'll be popular in the neighborhood. Anyway, so I, I don't actually expect the Marlins to do that, but I do think that they're going to try to be active in free agency. I think that, you know, God knows what the Reds are going to do. They're probably not going to throw money at at people. And mm-hmm. maybe the Pirates are like, well, Pirates, that Chris Archer yeah. thing was kind of a, <laughs> we shouldn't have done that. I, and, but let, think about what teams might, so we're talking about the teams that might not try actively to get a lot better, but what teams might try to get worse this offseason? And I think one mm-hmm. one candidate, even though I think it's unlikely, one candidate could be the Mariners, who could decide mm-hmm. now that, well, it's time, we should just blow it up and try to start over because this isn't going, this isn't working. Mm-hmm. And outside of that, you have the Diamondbacks who are in a similar position as the Mariners. So that's a some sort of possibility. But is that mm-hmm. it? I don't really Giants. see another candidate. Yeah. Giants, I think, would be the only one that stands out to me, maybe. But otherwise, everyone has already embarked on that process already or is past it. I, I don't know who else. I mean, Rangers? Or did Rangers do that already? I don't know. Right, the Rangers sort of already got there, whether yeah. intentionally or not intentionally. They don't, there's not a whole lot for them to do at this point. So the, I, they have admitted they're in the midst of a rebuild. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we'll see how that develops, but just something to keep in mind. And I'm sure we'll be talking about this again. But when spring rolls around, we shouldn't be too confident in which teams belong to, to each group because the season can play out much differently from what we expect. So... You just alluded to Manny Machado. That's a frequent talking point this week as free agency begins. Shall we talk briefly about Manny Machado and the idea that he cost himself this postseason reputationally and by extension free agently? Do you think that there is anything at all to that idea? I'll just say, like, I like Manny Machado less than I liked Manny Machado a month ago, I guess. But that is uh, something that is completely without 
stakes and I am not in a position to commit money to Manny Machado either way. So that does not matter. What matters is whether it will actually take teams out of the running for him or lower the maximum offer that he receives. That's a different question. No. Mm-hmm. Wait. Well, I don't know what I just responded to. I don't know if I'm responding <laughs> to should we talk about this or is it going to happen? So we should talk about this and we'll talk about it more. I don't think that he costs himself very much. I think that in a league where one of the best teams in baseball can trade for a player who's still waiting for a trial date for domestic assault, I feel like yeah. we're not going to see much of a problem with someone deciding they want to throw $350 million or whatever at Manny Machado, who's a great player in the prime of his career. Robinson Cano did not struggle to get money when he had a reputation for not running out grand balls. Who cares? Uh, now, Robinson Cano did not have a reputation for throwing baseball pads at opponents at third base. So that's something to consider in Machado's case. Of course, there's him stepping on Jesus Aguilar. And of course, there's him saying, well, I'm not Johnny Hustle. But, you know, you can... One of the problems with Machado, look, he's he clearly has like a temper. He doesn't really know how to control himself all the time. None of us know how to control ourselves all the time, but only Manny Machado stepped on somebody's foot in these playoffs. He had his bad-looking slide where he grabbed, what, Orlando Garcia's ankle. So there, mm-hmm. it's pretty clear that Machado— The other time after the, the Brewers game example, there was the one in the World Series, right, where the— no one made that big a deal of it because it happened at the end of an inning and it, it didn't blow up and it, it didn't cost anyone anything. But one of the replays showed that it looked like he had kind of done it again. Oh, yeah. Hard to, yeah. yeah. Like he, he basically stepped on, I guess it was Pierce's foot probably at, at first base. And, you know, his foot came down on top of the other guy's foot and it showed that very clearly. And with someone else, he might have figured eh, it's an accident. But with Machado, it looked like a pattern. And so to do it again, I mean, <laughs> there's there's a difference between the hustle stuff and the actively risking injury to another player stuff mm-hmm. that kind of elevates him into a, a different tier in my mind. Yeah, and not in the way that like Chase Utley would have put second baseman in danger because that was in theory because he was hustling and not because he's just kind of a dick. So uh-huh. in Matata's could be both, case, but yeah, it, yeah it, it could be both. <laughs> I think it's. It's funny because a few months ago when Machado was traded, I think it was Dan Connolly uh, for The Athletic, but he, he wrote an article talking with people who have known Machado for a while and saying that even in this like lost season for the Orioles, Machado had finally learned maturity. He'd finally become like the leader <laughs> and, and the, the, the full-grown man that he was supposed to be all this time, and he'd put the past behind him, and very obviously that's not entirely true. I think, though, when you are a team that is looking at the market, you are thinking, well, who are the great players who are out there? There's Manny Machado, there's Bryce Harper, and then there's a few others, but we, maybe Machado is a better fit. There are not many comparable players in baseball, period, but certainly not who are available to acquire. And I think that's ultimately going to rule the day. I think that a team that would be willing to throw hundreds of millions of dollars at Manny Machado is not going to be deterred by issues that they will convince themselves can be coached out of him. Whether or not that's true, I certainly don't know. And given that Machado has grown older and is still doing things like this, it seems like it's less likely it'll go away. It's not like he's going to get faster over time. If anything, mm-hmm. he's probably just going to loaf more and more, step on more and more angles. But mm-hmm. I think that it is a team that sees stars in Manny Machado is going to be able to trick itself, if not convince itself, into believing that Machado can get better from this or that 
at the end of the day, Aguilar wasn't hurt, Pierce wasn't hurt, and Machado was like a sixth win player who's on the market and can play yeah. a couple positions. And, you know, he's he's a difference maker, even though he wasn't really a difference maker in the playoffs. So I think when when you have a star, a rare kind of star that could land on your roster, it seems like the the wins above replacement is going to win the day over the uh, the soft factors. Whether that's right, I can't really tell you. But, I mean, it's going to come down to a bidding war between however many three, four teams really want Manny Machado. And then the team that signs him is going to be the team that decides that those soft factors are the least important of everyone. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think at that point, it's likely that team's factoring them in 0% and then Machado mm-hmm. gets the same contract. Yeah, it only takes one or, or maybe two, I guess, to set up a, a bidding war. So if there are some suitors who are kind of turned off or would lower their maximum offer... I mean, as long as he is kind of going where the money is, which is understandable and probably what most free agents do, it really only takes a couple teams that don't see it as that big a concern for him to get exactly as much money as he would have gotten otherwise. And I mean, the whole hustle thing, you know, I know that A, often there's a a racial element to perceptions of players and hustle and who's gritty and a lunch pail player and all that. And I'm not saying that doesn't play some role in Machado's case. But of course, in Machado's case, he came out and said, yeah, I don't hustle. So it's not (laughs) purely a a perception (laughs) issue in his case. And it's funny because in this postseason, we saw him hustle a lot at times, and then we saw him hustle not at all at other times. Notably, the most recent example was when he hit a single off the wall that didn't look great, and there were other examples that were maybe more costly than that. So in general, I don't think hustle matters all that much. I think a lot of it is eyewash. I think you know, in some cases... Guys who don't hustle, they get that reputation on plays that don't matter that much anyway, or they're not going to beat them out. Now, if you're in October and you're having meaningful opportunities to hustle, then I think you want to see it in that case. And Machado didn't say like, well, I, you know, I, I'm trying to conserve my strength or I'm trying to avoid injury or I think this is better in the long run or something. No, he just kind of said, I, I don't run and I should run, but I've always done it this way and I'm not Johnny Hustle and... That was it. He wasn't particularly apologetic about it. And so I think we're talking about like, you know, plus or minus like five singles a year here. Generally, it between your super hustle guy and your lollygagger. I just I don't think it makes that much of a difference from a performance perspective. And obviously Machado has been playing this way for his whole career by his own admission. So everything he has accomplished thus far has come as a sporadic hustler. And he's been fantastic. He's been like a Hall of Fame level player. So even if he were to suddenly hustle, it it would be just a bonus on top of everything else he already does. So he is worth an enormous contract regardless of the hustle, unless you think there's like some extra negative to the hustle where it hurts team morale or something. Or if you think it's indicative of like, well, you know, he's not hustling now and maybe that extends to his preparation for the game and his conditioning and he's young enough that it hasn't hurt him so far. But hey, we're looking at committing to him for seven or eight years and into his 30s. And maybe the fact that he's not hustling in his early to mid 20s, maybe that indicates that he won't age as well as someone else. And, you know, I don't know, maybe there's something to that. It's not 
unreasonable to think that. And as for the other stuff, it's like, I mean, his teammates don't seem to hate him and other teams do. But if he's on your team and he's good, probably teammates are going to be fine with him. And probably his fan base is going to be fine with him. Like Orioles fans love Manny Machado, regardless of the bat throwing incident. I don't think all Dodgers fans turned on Manny Machado for the Jesus Aguilar incident, even though Machado was clearly a, a rental who probably wouldn't be sticking around. So do I root for Machado a little less than before? Do I have, like, less warm feelings about him than I did before? Yeah, I guess so. But if I were running a baseball team and just wanted to win and that were paramount, all else being equal, like if there were an equally good player out there who did not step on people's feet and try to trip them (laughs) and throw bats at them, like, I would prefer that guy. But there aren't many free agents ever who are available, who are as good and as young and have the track record of success that Manny Machado does. So there's a a scarcity there where it's not like you can say, well, we'll just take this other guy who is just as good but less problematic. You, If you want that superstar, you're going to have to either sign Machado or Harper, and Machado is your infield option. So there's just not a whole lot of other ways to go there. That's where it it comes down. You look at Machado's career, he... He just uh, stole the second most bases he's ever stolen in his career. He tied his career high for triples over his career. He's been like a slightly below average base runner. He's got a league average batting average of balls in play. Also, most importantly, over, what, six plus seasons, he's been worth 30 wins above replacement. He's measured as like an incredible defensive third baseman when he's been able to play third base. He got better at shortstop yeah. with the Dodgers. Like you, Manny Machado presumably couldn't be this good if he didn't care or if he was coasting. And I think that's yeah. that's kind of what you you worry about is that this is a guy who just isn't like channeling his energy toward being mm-hmm. the best player he can be. And, and maybe there's been a little bit of that. I don't really know. But there have been enough interviews with Machado's teammates or former teammates saying that they actually like playing with him and that he seems like he's a good dude. Coaches and other players have said that Machado's a, a good guy and sometimes he just, you know, things get the best of him on the field. But if it's if it means anything, you can look at Machado debuted in the majors in 2012, and it was starting in 2012 that the Orioles became this weird rampant overachiever. Like 2012, 2014, 2016, the Orioles were way better than anyone expected them to be, and Machado was a part of those teams. So if you're worried about sort of the team chemistry aspect, at least you can't use that as a negative indicator. The Orioles exceeded expectations with Machado as a core part of the roster now. If it were 10 or 15 or 100 years down the line and, and teams had figured out some way to quantify a guy's clubhouse impact, then I could see maybe, and this is a c- complete speculation on my part, maybe if Machado were some sort of net negative in the clubhouse, that's something that you factor into his win estimate. And you're like, well, actually, he's worth six wins on the field, but he's he kind of costs you a few wins and cohesiveness or whatever the weird sentences are that are, people are going to be using when we get the science so mm-hmm. then it would make sense to dock him money because he would be less valuable. But right now, I think that teams just wouldn't be able, enough teams wouldn't be able to convince themselves that that's true. Uh, there's mm-hmm. not a whole lot of evidence that it's true. I mean, you know, the Dodgers traded for Manny Machado when they were in a tight spot and they had a good September. They made it to the World Series. Now, that's a great baseball team. They were supposed to be a really good team, even without Manny Machado, but he didn't seem to make them worse. 
I mean, the Orioles, for their part, they didn't get worse after they traded Manny Machado, which is weird. But, you know, this this was just an exceptional Orioles team. I'm not going to hold Machado responsible for that, given everything that, that he did. So, in conclusion, wasn't it not even that long ago that people thought Bryce Harper was a little too much of a jerk for teams yeah. to want to sign? Like, who's who's worse? Who's less appealing? I don't really mind either one of them in that like of all the faults that some players have in major league baseball yeah i don't machado doesn't look good when he loafs it or when he tries to step on somebody's ankle those are bad things to do but there are so many worse things that players do or have done the manny machado i know manny machado threw a baseball bat but he didn't (laughs) this is a weird thing to justify he didn't come close to hitting a guy with a baseball bat the guy was far away Manny Machado mm-hmm. has never thrown a 100-mile-per-hour fastball at somebody's neck. You know, Manny Machado, is, it's, as far as we know, hasn't been – he hasn't had any off-the-field arrests, right? I'm not just forgetting something. Like, I don't think Manny Machado has gotten in so. trouble with the law no. Yeah, mm-hmm. that we know of. So, like, there are actual criminals who are in Major League Baseball, and I just – I don't I don't care. I, I think, Manny, mm-hmm. like you, I don't – Manny Machado wasn't quite to my taste as a player, but – that is subjective on my part, and he is a really, really good player, and teams are mm-hmm. going to reward him for that. He is only 26 years old. I had quirks that are no longer true about me. When I was 26 mm-hmm. years old, I was less good of a human being. I wasn't stepping on ankles, but I could see myself trying to do it in the heat of the moment. <laughs> well, the last thing I guess we should talk about, we're not going to get to that many emails today as it turns out, but... One of the people who will now be faced with the decision of whether to sign Manny Machado, realistically, he's probably not one of those people, but technically one of those people, new GM for the New York Mets, Brody Van Wackenen. I guess we should talk about this hire because it is not your typical hire. Brody Van Wagenen was the co-head of CAA Sports. He was a very high-powered sports agent. And now he is the general manager of the Mets. And there are a number of things to talk about here. A, there is the question of whether it's a smart hire from the Mets' perspective, whether he will be a good GM or whether there's reason to think he will. There's the separate issue of whether it even matters who the Mets GM is as long as the Wilpons are their owners. And then there's the other issue of whether it is unethical or whether we should be uncomfortable with the idea of an agent going from agenting to general managing. Do you have any thoughts about these three things? Some. So I guess the first thing to acknowledge, I don't know anything about basketball, but my understanding is that there was a player agent who became an executive for the Golden State Warriors. And so that has happened. The Warriors are really good. Uh, In baseball, the most recent example is that Dave Stewart, who had an agency, took over the Diamondbacks. That was a catastrophe, but not for agency reasons so much as the bad GM reasons. And Stewart, of course, did not represent like half of the Diamondbacks roster at the time (laughs) that he made that and I. I think Joe Garagiola Jr., who had been a GM of the Diamondbacks earlier and also an agent, I think both of them had had some front office yeah. experience prior to that, whereas Van Wagenen has zero. He has been yeah. an agent. He has not worked for a team before this. Yeah, Stewart was an AG, an assistant GM for at least one team, maybe a, a few. He was also served in some coaching roles. Anyway, Stewart mm-hmm. more, made a little more more sense. Now, looking at Van Wagenen, let's, let's take the— 
Take this as Brody Van Wagenen versus High and Bloom, the uh, assistant GM for the Rays. And the way that I, I think about this, it, this is clearly a very volatile decision that the Mets have made. And in the same way that I think you and I both think about pitcher hitting, I wouldn't want my pitchers, my favorite team's pitchers to hit, but I'm really glad that it happens, you know, because you get to study it. And I, if I were a Mets fan, I wouldn't be happy that they hired Brody Van Wagenen. But as an observer, I'm very happy that this is happening because I want to see how it goes, which is not to say that this is a certain catastrophe because I don't think that it is. If there's one thing that Brody Van Wagenen has demonstrated, it's that he can work with the Wilpons. It's that he can kind of get <laughs> yeah. along with one of the most meddlesome and troubling ownerships in Major League Baseball. So that's that's something. He, uh, he might not be afraid to take them to task. There was his whole statement about Jacob deGrom in a long-term contract in the middle of last year. Uh, I would assume, and I, I think it's pretty clear, that like the the Mets players have given this the okay, those who Van Wagenen has represented and and I think you want to assess, but it's just like, well, he just wants to win, you know, empty, empty statements, but he's divested mm-hmm. from all of his interest with his old agency, which I mean, of course he has. That would be a weird extra conflict if he hadn't. So I I can sort of I can talk myself into seeing the upside here, but I Heim Bloom would have been so easy and safe. And mm-hmm. I'm, it's easy to say smart. I mean, we can't really know, but it seems like it would be smart. He's had a hand in one of the more successful organizations relative to their budget in Major League Baseball for the last several years. He's got a lot of experience. He's been in like every department besides the active roster that the Rays have in the organization. Mm-hmm. And it would have been so simple to hire High and Bloom and sell it as look we're moving into the 21st century or whatever teams mm-hmm. say like we're well into the 21st century by the way it's 2018 <laughs> yeah but, well most teams like, are yeah yeah so i i think like if for me if there was any concern it would have been whether high and bloom wanted to work for the mets because mm-hmm. of the ownership he you, no one wants to be a gm when you have both your hands tied behind your back but uh, it seemed like bloom was quite interested and still the Mets went with Van Wagen and so it's it's an oh it's a wild decision they could have it would have been so easy to go the other way but I don't think it's a a definite nightmare but it it has a lot more nightmare potential than I think Bloom would have yeah and you know there's the like the temptation is just to say oh you know Lowell Mets the Mets did a, a Mets thing again they took a situation that could have just made them better and now it's this wild card and who knows what will happen but from what I've read, and I don't know Brody Van Wagenen, but he seems to be respected and competent, was clearly very successful as an agent. There are, in theory, advantages to having that background as an agent. I mean, you're not bound by convention, front office traditions. You're going to be original in a sense because you're not coming from that background you have interacted with every team, with every GM, with every ownership group. You probably have a decent sense of how most teams operate and you have some relationships there. So that could be beneficial. He is reportedly, you know, and, and according to his own comments, pretty analytics friendly and to the extent that the Wilpons will allow it, seems to be interested in expanding their resources and hiring people, which is good because they're lagging way behind in that area. <laughs> so, I mean, all of that, I think, says it could be fine. It could work out okay. Maybe it's even a intriguing, smart, out-of-the-box hire that will pay some dividends or something. So the question is whether there's some 
benefit to that institutional knowledge of having been with a baseball team, whether when you actually get into that situation and suddenly you're having to deal with I mean, contracts, obviously, he's dealt with. That was his job. But just all the administrative stuff, all of the unanticipated challenges of taking over a baseball operations department and hiring people and putting them in place. I mean, any job that you just haven't done at all before, there's going to be a learning curve there. And there are going to be things that you didn't even realize would be hard. And he's been in the game. He's been in the industry. So it, it won't be all new to him but there's some risk there and as for the conflict of interest or potential conflict of interest right he did as far as we know divest from all of his financial stake in his agency presumably he like actually did as opposed to like donald trump did where who knows and probably not but (laughs) i think if we assume that yeah he has no financial stake in those things anymore and yeah, he's not going to like enrich himself somehow by giving extensions to his players, like something super obvious like that. I know that the Players Association has still made some comments kind of like wary and leery just because when an agent goes from agent to GM, especially in this case where he represented Cespedes and DeGrom and Todd Frazier and Tebow and others on this team, It's like, you know, your agent's kind of your confidant and knows things that your team doesn't know. He knows what your goals are, what needs to happen to get you to sign an extension. Like, there's a lot of personal knowledge there because these are close relationships and you can't forget about that. So, in theory, you're kind of at an advantage when you go into a negotiation having represented someone in negotiations before you know what they're thinking what their priorities are so i don't know like as far as we know none of these players objected to this like we have to assume that there have been conversations that we haven't been privy to i i just don't know that's all kind of private but you could see why people would be a little uneasy with that on the other hand Maybe it actually benefits them in some way. It's possible that that happens too, just because like they have a rapport and he likes these people. And frankly, I don't know whether Jacob deGrom was going to get any money out of the Mets previously. And maybe <laughs> now the odds of that have actually gone up. So I don't know. Cheryl Ring has written at length about this and the fiduciary duties of agents. And of course, Scott Boris has chimed in to say that, well, he's been offered many GM jobs. and I'm uh, sure. (laughs) Yes. Hasn't considered them because it's such a clear conflict of interest. That is how he feels, or at least what he's saying. And you can kind of understand that, but I I don't know. We just, we don't know how the players feel about this. And you hope that that information and knowledge is not exploited somehow. And if you're a Mets fan, you also hope that the Wilpons just give the guy free reign because if they don't, it doesn't matter who the GM of the Mets are. It only matters that he's not going to be allowed to spend anything because of the Wilpons. When do you think is the most recent year Scott Boris was offered a GM position? <laughs> I wonder. I mean, it probably has happened at some point. Like he's he's clearly sharp and astute and knows players and cares about players i don't know if caring about players is is a benefit to a gm (laughs) or not but i mean and he his agency obviously like has analytics people like his boris corp is like a team almost with a whole baseball operations infrastructure essentially so 
Plus, he has all these relationships with owners who he goes around the baseball operations department to get giant deals for guys who aren't all that great at baseball anymore. So it would not at all surprise me if one of those owners had pretty recently (laughs) said, hey, Scott, come work for me. Or, you know, maybe like teams were so sick of having to give so much money to him and his clients that they figured we'll just hire him and then we won't have to worry about that anymore. So so the Nationals. So, okay. Yeah. Uh, so three, three points in order. One, speaking to your, mo- your most recent point, it, it is absolutely true that Brody Van Wagenen has information about several Mets players that uh, an executive might not otherwise have because, like you said, they, are, they do serve as pseudo-confidants. Now, if there is an upside to that downside, it's that he's not gaining any more information over time. Like he'll, It'll never be more of a disadvantage than it is right now because with every day that passes with Fenwagon as the GM, he's not getting that same information that he used to get from his players. And that's temporary. Those players won't last forever on the roster. Now, Van Wagenen might not last forever in his executive role. Well, I can assure you he won't. He will die. But with, with DeGrom... It's maybe the most visible case, and that one will be interesting because Van Wagenen has the best understanding of what DeGrom actually wants because, you know, he's represented DeGrom through this entire season with through the Mets being bad, through DeGrom talking about an extension or a trade. So he knows what DeGrom's priorities are. So if, for example, DeGrom really badly wants to stay in New York, Van Wagenen might be able to know that he can lowball him and still get a contract, a better contract than he might have gotten otherwise. So, you know, that's that's a possible factor, but it's for at this point hypothetical or theoretical because we just don't know what kind of advantage that might actually confer or disadvantage, depending on your perspective. Second point, mm-hmm. there is the benefit. Had the Mets hired Heim Bloom, it would have been like, right, okay, well, here's another one of those GM types. A guy who is mm-hmm. obviously fit to be a GM is now a GM. Great. We have another sharp well-educated white dude, and now Brody Van Wagenen is uh, <laughs> presumably a well-educated white dude. This is mm-hmm. not, I want to make clear, this is not a diversity hire in any way but no. the professional background way. So this mm-hmm. is at least a change, which is a different thought process in the front office, which is a good thing for baseball, even though, and I'll say it again, not a diversity <laughs> hiring. Brody Van Wagenen mm-hmm. is very clearly a white man. So there's we've got a lot of those, but at least he's got a more of a white man, really. Really (laughs) good. His name is Brody Van Wagenhead. And the third point, and this goes back to, I think, one of the first things you said. One of the real hiccups here, and arguably the biggest potential hiccup is, is like you talked about, there's all this administrative stuff that happens behind the scenes. The GM has so many responsibilities that as, as fans, you just think, well, he gives statements and then he makes trades and signs players. That's what the GM does. He builds the roster mm-hmm. and it's like, what? it's a dream job. He's playing fantasy baseball with millions of dollars in real people's lives hanging in the balance, mm-hmm. which comes with upsides and downsides. But there is, you have to build out a staff. You have to build out several departments. And, and I know, obviously, Brody Van Wagen knows a lot of people in the game and he has presumably assistants or other people who have worked with him at his at the agency but he doesn't have those connections he doesn't have like his his people you know if if the Mets hired Heim Bloom he would come with his people some of his people from the Rays people that he's worked with before analysts that he trusts and assistant GMs or special assistants that he he trusts and has developed relationships relationships with and and Brody Van Wagenen probably doesn't really have that so he's going to have to build out a staff from either people he knows who don't have much experience or he's going to have to kind of do this almost blind. You know, maybe maybe he'll be helped by Omar Minaya. Maybe that's good. I don't I can't <laughs> tell you if that's good. Maybe he'll just inherit what Sandy Alderson has, has had 
in New York and he'll just make do. That's not the worst thing in the world, but when you hire someone who doesn't have those connections, then it does make things a little more difficult. It makes it harder to get up and running. It just makes it harder to get your feet under you and really get things implemented quickly. So it could be a little era of a lot of false starts and then slow going for the Mets before they really get rolling. I don't know how that's going to manifest, but it can manifest in a lot of different ways. Missed paperwork or missed deadlines, or you just kind of overlook something or you don't properly analyze something during the offseason. So the Van Wagenen front office, as it were, is probably not going to be at I don't know, full seam for a, a year or two, if if then, because it, it's going to take a while to get set. Not that excited about having to say Brody Van Wagenen this many times. For, <laughs> I, I guess it's the same number of syllables as Alex Anthopoulos, but it doesn't run off the, the tongue quite as smoothly. So got to get used to that. Well, you prepared a stat blast, and I don't want it to go to waste. So let's do the stat blast. Okay. So, you know, it, would you be happier if they hired Bean Stringfellow instead of Brody Van Wagenen? <laughs> would that make a big difference to you? <laughs> I like that name, too. Yeah, it's a little shorter. They'll take a data set sort if I something like minus or OBS plus. And then they'll tease out some interesting tidbit, discuss it at length, and analyze it for Okay, so for this stat blast, I decided I would just present the final playoff statistics. I like to look at this every year to see how things changed in the playoffs. Now, I will tell you ahead of time, one thing I haven't yet calculated is the percentage of innings thrown by starting pitchers in this year's playoffs. That is harder to grab from baseball reference than most other statistics. So I haven't done that yet. I can tell you. Basically guaranteed starters through fewer innings than ever. I think that I think that we know that just because of Liam Hendricks and what the Brewers did. Yeah. I mean, I th- I'll figure it you- out while you're talking about other stuff. Perfect. Okay. So what what's your resource? Are you also using Baseball Reference? No, there are uh, MLB.com and ESPN.com have postseason stats where you can look up splits, starter and reliever. So that yeah. makes it a lot easier. It's just annoying because they they don't let you go show multiple years at a time which is yes, that's irritating true. when you yeah. want to go back to 1995. Anyway, so I have uh, prepared a bunch of the final playoff statistics. This year there were 33 playoff games, or if you want to think of it, 66 team games, because there are two teams in each game. That's 10 fewer games than last year. Last year, the playoffs were more dramatic. So I don't know. What statistic do you want to know first? Hmm. Well, a time of game, I guess, is the one everyone wonders about. Great. Okay, so I have game length per nine innings. I have it right here in front of me. So in the playoffs this year, the average game length per nine innings was three hours and forty minutes. That's a lot of that's a lot of time. So that is an exact tie with last year's playoffs, three hours and forty minutes for nine innings. But this season in the regular season, the average time of game was five minutes faster. So you could say that the gap between those numbers uh grew mm-hmm. by five minutes between last year and this year. Since 1995, which is as far back as I've gone, that measures the wildcard era, the average gap between regular season games and playoff games per nine innings is 30 minutes, and the gap this year, 40 minutes. That could be related to this next point. I will tell you, you probably have a good understanding. You're looking up how little starting pitchers worked in this year's playoffs, and unsurprised. So I calculated pitchers used per nine innings. Last year, 
tied the wildcard year high with 4.7 pitchers used per nine innings. And this year, 5.2 went up a whole yeah. half of a pitcher, a whole one arm of Pat Venditti uh, was extra <laughs> in this year's playoffs. So that would help to explain some of the delay, not, of course, the entire delay. So uh, one thing that would work against that, if you want to look at runs per nine innings this year in the playoffs, 3.9 relative to 4.5 in the regular season. That's a pretty normal drop-off. Again, over the wildcard era in the playoffs per nine innings, there has been uh, a half run less in the playoffs than during the regular season. This year, the drop was six-tenths of a run, so pretty close, but back under four runs per nine innings. That's a drop of a half run from last year's playoffs, where, of course, there were a lot of runs, especially in Game 5 of the World Series. A feature from last year's playoffs is that there were a lot of home runs. You remember all those home runs? I do. Mm-hmm. So yes. last year in the playoffs, 51% of all runs scored scored on home runs, which was a lot. It was uh, higher than the regular season total, which was already an all-time high of 43%. So uh, this year in the regular season, it went down. Only 40% of all runs were scored on homers. So that's a return to 2016 levels. And this year in the playoffs, 42% of all runs were scored on homers, which is far more in line with the averages. That's right back with 2016, right back with 2015, right there with 2011. So you might have had the sense that home runs weren't out of control in the playoffs, and that's true. Home runs were a little more normal during the regular season and then again in the playoffs. What else can we look at? Strikeouts would be a good thing to look at. So this year in the regular season, the strikeout rate was an all-time high. Uh, you can edit that line and repeat it in every one <laughs> podcast every year for the foreseeable mm-hmm. future. It will never not be true. So batter struck out 22.3% of the time during the regular season and in the playoffs. They struck out 24.7% of the time. That is a quarter of the time that batters came up in the playoffs. They struck out, which was an exact match with last season, 24.7%. Now, that those are all-time highs, but at least it shows that the gap between the playoff strikeout rate and the regular season strikeout rate was not quite as big. It's in keeping with kind of the average gap between the regular season and the playoff strikeout rate normally. Strikeouts go up about two percentage points. So just a couple other things to point out. We did, at least in the wildcard year, we did just see the lowest ever batting average. It's slight, but the playoff teams as a whole batted 218, which is down from last year's 223, which was down from 224, which was down from 227, etc. Batting average, of course, usually low in the playoffs, but we've never seen it quite this low. And the on-base percentage was pretty normal at 303, but team slugging was down at 357, which is lower than normal. So I will just tell you that the uh, the league OPS in the playoffs was 659. In the wildcard era, the average playoff OPS was 703. So we see a drop-off, but this puts us right back where the league was in 2016, right back where it was in 2014. We've seen a lot of low offense playoffs lately. Last year was sort of the exception. And one thing I like to point out every single year, one of the reasons that playoff performance is so low, anyone listening to this is aware that the league average, batting average on balls in play, is around 300 every single year. We know that to be true. And in the playoffs, it's not true. <laughs> the uh, the average bat up over the course of the wild card era has been all the way down at 282. And this year in the playoffs, it was 268. Last year in the playoffs, 266. Before that, 274. Before that, 271. Batting average on balls in play drops by a lot 
in the playoffs. Uh, now, some of that is probably colder weather. Mm-hmm. Some of that is probably better defenses. Some of that is probably optimized defenses. And some of that is probably having relievers throw more innings and having pitchers throwing harder. You just mm-hmm. Everything is working against hitters in the playoffs. So you see batting average and balls in play suffer. And that is one of the reasons why, as you and I talk about all the time around this time of year, that's one of the reasons why it's actually good to lean on the home run in the playoffs because it is so hard to string base runners together. The only thing that really worked in the haters' favor in the playoffs this year is that the walk rate was 10%, which is the highest it's been in the playoffs since the year 2000. So at least batters were finding their way on base, in part because Ryan Madsen wasn't warm yet. This year, the league leader in pitching appearances in the playoffs was Ryan Madsen. I'm sure the Dodgers don't regret that at all. Have you figured out your statistics? I have, yeah. And I have the percentage of innings pitched by relievers in every postseason going back to 2000 because I just did this year and I had done back to 2000 for an article earlier this year. So this year it was 49.7%. That was the percentage of postseason innings pitched by relievers. Of course, that doesn't count openers or bulk guys or whatever. It doesn't classify those guys differently. So that is a record, certainly a record in this time period, and safe to say a record forever, at least in the era of many playoff rounds. So last year was also a record, 46.53, and the year before that was also a record, (laughs) 43.23. So we've seen now for three years in a row unprecedented percentages of innings pitched by relievers in the postseason. Of course, we have also seen that during the regular season, where it's gone up from 35% in 2015 to 36.7% to 38.1% to this year 40.1% in the regular season innings pitched by relievers. This has fluctuated a fair amount in the past, like before anyone was talking about playoff bullpenning or whatever from 2000 to 2014 like at the low there was 31.2 percent in 2001 that was the year I guess where all of the innings were pitched by Kurt Schilling and Randy Johnson (laughs) and then 2004 I don't know what happened in 2004 but 43.1 which Hmm. is very high almost as high as it was a couple of years ago that year so It has fluctuated in like uh, 2007 was over 40%, 2011 when Tony La Russa kind of bullpenned his way to a World Series, that was over 40%, 2014 was over 40%. So obviously like the mix of teams in a a postseason and whose starters are available and just who pitches well is going to dictate this stuff pretty heavily. It's a, a pretty small sample relative to the regular season, but it's very safe to say that now that we're at essentially 50%, that is not an accident. It's not random fluctuation. It is teams choosing to do that. Thank you for reading that math. And it's funny to point out, you can talk about the percentage of innings thrown by starters, but then there's the innings thrown by starters as starters. And then of course there are the innings thrown by starters as relievers, which is something we've seen that's anecdotally on the rise, but not even counting like Nathan Neovaldi, who just became a reliever, but is a starter. But of course we also saw like Chris Sale working out of the bullpen and David Price working out of the bullpen, et cetera. We saw this last year, it happened again this year. So it's different. And it's, there, there are so many interesting ways to try to build a pitching staff. Like you think at the, at the deadline, for example, you can say, well, relievers are at a premium because everybody wants good relievers at the deadline. 
and nobody really needs a fifth starter. Well, the Red Sox went out and traded an interesting pitcher in Jalen Beeks to get Nathan Uvalde, and Uvalde mm-hmm. was a starter for them. But then in the playoffs, he was a shutdown reliever for them yeah. for the most part. And so you could think at the deadline, well, why pay retail price for a good reliever when you can pay a lesser price for an interesting starter who could become a good reliever? So there's just so many ways to to navigate it. You think like the Nationals paid for regular good reliever Kelvin Herrera. Uh, mm-hmm. The Astros paid for under-the-radar good reliever Ryan Presley. And the Red Sox yeah. paid for under-the-radar good reliever because he's a starter, Nathan Eovaldi. And yeah. now two of those teams made the playoffs, and one of them won the World Series. But it's just it's just so interesting because the, you you know at the deadline everybody wants more relievers. But it turns out they don't necessarily have to be relievers at the time that you get them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there have been uh, – the article I originally did that research about the percentage of postseason innings pitch, that was uh, an article – on August 1st, I think, where I wrote about the trade deadline and how there have been more trades, more relievers traded, more total war from relievers traded at the deadline in the last couple of years than had been in the two decades before that. So it's it's definitely the case that more relievers are being traded. Now, there are just more relievers, period, in baseball. Everyone's a reliever at this point. And <laughs> As you're saying, some guys who are not relievers at the deadline are relievers by the time October rolls around. But yeah, we do see more of that now. So do you have time for one email? So this <laughs> Let's do one email, email for our email show. <laughs> okay. All right. Gary from Baltimore says, When I lived in Northeast Ohio, one of the most common complaints I would hear was lamenting the Indians breaking up the great teams from the 90s, despite the fact that those beloved players would have been mostly terrible by that point. What if Astros owner Jim Crane were to take this fan advice to heart and extend everyone on the 2018 Astros 40-man roster lifetime contracts and never change the 40-man roster again? Assuming the players couldn't retire and that the Astros would never have so many injuries that they couldn't physically feel the team, which season would you guess the Astros wouldn't be division favorites? When would they be projected as sub-500? When would they challenge the 2003 Tigers? When would they be Pecos League quality? Oh, man. Okay, so Jim Crane, by the way, congratulations on being fantastically wealthy to do this uh, yeah. because everyone's going to be. So, okay, you're going to hmm, you're going to run into some pitcher injuries pretty quick. Yeah. But I mean, so for the hmm, for the short term, I don't even know the best place to look at like what the Astros roster situation is, but whatever. Let's just yeah. let's just open this up. So, they everybody on the 40-man roster okay so it's not an old team for the most part right and you look at the stars like Altuve should have another several years Bregman Correa Springer they Mm -hmm. should be good for a while and right there like those are players good enough to carry a roster to say nothing of like Justin Verlander I would say has at least two more years and Garrett Cole could have a while if he doesn't get hurt and oh man Mm -hmm. this okay and you have, you know, like Josh James is on the yeah. end, right? I mean, you have like guys who are, I, mean, I assume there's like what Kyle Tucker and, you know, top prospects who maybe haven't fully established themselves yet, but you get them for their whole careers. Uh, okay. So the the advantage for the Astros is that other than the A's, it's not a tough division. Like the Mariners are average and the Angels are average and the Rangers are bad. The Astros are the clear favorites. And now it, are for the sake of continuing this conversation, does this include, like, they've extended Dallas Keuchel, who's a free agent, and Charlie Morton, who's a free agent? Mm-hmm. Like, they, they're sticking yep. around, too? Okay. I think so, yeah. Right. All the 2018 Astros. 
Okay, mm-hmm. so they have, let's see, they move forward and they have zero flaws? No <laughs> yeah. no flaws on I mean, the team? Yeah, I mean, I still think the Astros, just going by true talent, were the best team in baseball this mm-hmm. year. Results-wise, Red Sox, definitely the best. But in terms of, I don't know, if you simulated the season a million times or whatever, I think the Astros are the best team. So, yeah, you're starting from the pinnacle. Yeah, okay, so it's another 100-win team next year. Uh, and I think just because of the way that time works, players decline randomly, players get hurt. I think you have to start docking wins starting in like 2020. But mm-hmm. I mean, the Mariners are not going anywhere good. The Angels are going to take a little while. Plus, they're going to lose Mike Trout potentially down the road. Rangers are going to take a long time. Ugh. Like the, the Astros yeah. would definitely be the favorite in 2019, probably the favorite in 2020. Right. And it's not just taking the major league roster that's the thing it's taking also Kyle Tucker and well Josh James is in the majors now but you know some of the top prospects I don't know who there are guys on the 40 men who have not played or have barely played in the majors who are promising players and so as guys on the active roster decline and get older a few of those guys at least will be getting better and replacing them so they kind of have some internal replacements i mean maybe you'll have some pitchers who have like career ending injuries and and that sort of thing but you're getting some some reinforcements arriving for a while here yeah there's i mean and they have marwin gonzalez so they have like sort of like a backup shortstop and also the backup to the backup shortstop because the backup shortstop is alex bregman and then they have jd davis and aj reed and they have like like francis martes and the uh, okay i think maybe oh man I'm going to say 2022 would be the first year they wouldn't win 90 games. And then okay. from there, you know, they'll they'll just get worse. But even that, I'm not – that's just – I can't point to anyone in particular. That's just guessing that, you know, enough pitchers will end up hurt and worse because that's just the way that pitching works. But mm-hmm. there's also the chance, and maybe this is true, maybe it's not, but if there's one team in baseball who's probably, like, starting to figure out biomechanics, it's the Astros. <laughs> so, like, maybe – they're even better than the average team at keeping their own pitchers healthy, Lance McCullers Jr. aside. So something to keep an eye. Remember, we haven't even mentioned the name Brad Peacock, and he's had like one of the best strikeout rates in baseball and was left off the playoff roster because they're so good. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it would be a long time. I'll, I'll say like 2020, oh man, I'll say 2024 would be the first year they're just not a good team. Okay. Yeah. So this year, the Astros had a slightly below league average batting age. And they had a a pretty old pitching staff, actually. Their pitching staff was 30 years old on average. You know, you you have Verlander in there. You have some guys like that. Not that the full season age averages perfectly represent their current 40 men, but 2024, okay. I mean, if we say, like, including the 40 men, their average age right now as a team would probably be, like, what, 20 five or something like that so you know you figure like in 20 years they're like 45 on average they're all Bartolo Colon age and assuming they're not all as well preserved as Rafael Palmero like they're gonna be 2003 Tigers they're gonna be worse than that at that point you're gonna have lost a lot of players you're gonna have you're going to start to have trouble actually fielding a full roster for Mm -hmm. a team or a season. So (laughs) there's probably like a point where Pecos League, if we're talking like lowest level of Indy League, I mean, we could be going like 
20 years, right? <laughs> At least because there are issues. I mean, there are guys who will not be major league quality. There will guys who will be super old, but most players in the Pecos League, even though they're in their 20s, they were never close to major league caliber to begin with. And so even 40-year-old Astros are going to be better <laughs> than a lot of those guys. So <laughs> I I guess, all right. So you're saying 2024 is the first year they're not good, did you say? And Just then, they will be, be, be bad. Okay. And maybe a, a couple years after that to like truly terrible truly replacement terrible, yeah. level. Yeah, so, you know, by, like, 2027, so we're saying, like, 10 years, basically, if you just (laughs) took the the Astros' current 40-man and kept it together for 10 years, they would go from being the best team in baseball to the worst team in baseball. Yeah, the clear worst. Clear worst, yeah, the, the Orioles, but, yeah. Okay, so 10 years to that, and then I don't know how many more years you have to go till they're, like bad for just any level of professional baseball like another 10 at least probably more so yeah i I guess that that sounds about ballpark right to me god that's (laughs) do you i know you're looking at the numbers right now but guess yuli guriel's age uh he's he's older right he's got to be like what early 30s right he's 34 years old yeah, okay, that's a little older than I thought. Yeah. yeah, but, you know, the Astros have A.J. Reed and Tyler White and J.D. Davis, so, you know, they'd be able to plug in. Now, they would really be leading on Max Stassi as the catcher because Brian McCann is the alternative. That's he true. is 34 years old because, what, Garrett Stubbs is not on the 40-man roster yet. There are a yeah. lot of good prospects in the Astros system who are yet on the 40-man roster, but, I mean, if you are let them sign everyone. Maldonado? Do they get to keep Maldonado? Oh, yeah, well, but is he? He's 32 also. So. Yeah, there you go. So, yeah. if, like, if if you said... If you wanted to take this to the extreme, and as if we haven't been at the extreme yet, <laughs> what if they signed everybody in the organization? Like everybody that they have right yeah. now is theirs mm. and they can get nobody else. Or, or can they, wait, can they still make moves? I no, mean, I no. don't think they can make moves. No. I think they're just rosters frozen. Yeah, okay. if they could have anyone, that goes back to the question of like, what's the average expectation for a farm system in any given year? How many major leaguers, how many war do you think you're going to get out of that? And I I have seen articles that answered that question, but I don't remember the answer right now. But the Astros don't have an average farm system. They have <laughs> one of the best, if not the best at, at this point. I guess it's not quite Padres quality maybe, but it's it's up there. And yeah, you're right. Then you'd never have to worry about depth because that could really sink you more quickly than we're saying like if you had an injury stack where you just right you didn't have a catcher or you just couldn't run a rotation out there because everyone shredded their arms or something like if you could have everyone in your organization then you'd at least have warm bodies to throw out there to fill any hole now now all the players presumably under this hypothetical the astros try to keep the same 25 or 40 man roster together as much as they can and so you wouldn't really get a replacement unless you had a major injury because Mm -hmm. we're just dedicated to keeping it all together (laughs) so which would start to work to the team's detriment if for example like i don't know tony sip gets hurt and then he misses a few months and his replacement is a lot better but then tony sip is healthy again and by rule you have to put tony sip on the roster instead of the replacement so the (laughs) the people in the minors would start to grow furious pretty quickly so there would be some sort of like team discord because people would be like Mm -hmm. we're not getting chances please trade us (laughs) yeah so maybe (laughs) like the mutiny would bring down the team from the inside 
Yeah, I wonder, what, yeah, would the clubhouse chemistry be incredible because everyone <laughs> has been playing together for decades or would it be terrible because they've been together for so long and they have no ability to go anywhere else and they're just prisoners of this team and they hate each other. So I'm not sure which would happen. Yeah, right, because you could look at it, you know, they could become like a 25 snippy old members of a giant polyamorous married couple in the sense where they're just yeah. like, can we talk to anyone else? They would really start right. to value their time away from the ballpark. Yeah. All right. So that is that. No, I had one other Astros-related question set aside, so I'll just answer that while we're on the subject. This one's from Earl from Portland. He says, What the heck is up with all the grounded into double plays that the Astros piled up this season? Not sure if there's a stat blast in this, but has a team this good ever been this bad at avoiding double plays? And Earl is right. Baseball Prospectus has a stat called double play percentage, which is just your number of double plays over the opportunities for double plays. And the Astros led the major leagues this year in that stat. They had a 13% double play percentage. Looks like the league average is uh, around 10%. So I went to look for comps, and you don't have to go that far back in history to find another team like this. The 2011 Cardinals, whom we mentioned earlier in this episode, according to Baseball Prospectus, their offense was almost exactly as good as the 2018 Astros. In fact, they had the 2011 Cardinals as about two points better by true average, and those Cardinals had an even higher double play percentage, 14.6%. So it's not unheard of that these Astros were as good as they were, and grounded into as many double plays as they did. Now, it's not just because they're putting a lot of guys on base, because again, this is just out of double play opportunities. And it's kind of strange in that they were not a big ground ball hitting team. But there's not a huge range between teams in double play percentage. So there's probably a lot of randomness at play. There are only so many double play opportunities. Some hard hit balls can turn into double plays. So you might hit a ball really well, and it just won't work out well. And Good hitting teams aren't necessarily fast teams that can beat out double plays. So I think that's all it is. Kind of weird, but not the weirdest. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. And five listeners who have recently signed up to do so include Matthew Niederer, Jonathan Sieg, Rob David, Aaron Schaefer, and Joel Gillespie. Thanks to all of you. You can also join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash effectivelywild. And you can rate and review and subscribe to Effect wild on itunes thanks to dylan higgins for his editing assistance please keep your questions and comments coming for me and jeff via email at podcast at or if you're a patreon supporter via the patreon messaging system didn't get to that many emails today but emails are kind of the lifeblood of this podcast at times over the winter when there is less actual news to talk about so we need your help and we will be back a little later this week with another episode won't you be my way Yeah, you gotta live